I thought um, might be uh, appropriate to um, begin this evening um, since uh, not that I wish to dwell upon Allen Ginsberg as uh, the central theme of this retreat, but uh, <laughs> but uh, there's a, a long poem that he wrote in 1959, three years after his mother passed away, which is called Kaddish, which is the uh, the Jewish prayers for the dead, and uh, he wrote this after his mother died, and it's dedicated uh, to her, Naomi Ginsberg. So I'll just read you the, um, the first page. Strange now to think of you, gone, without corsets and eyes, while I walk on the sunny pavement of Greenwich Village. Downtown Manhattan, clear winter noon, and I've been up all night, talking, talking, reading the Kaddish aloud, listening to Ray Charles' blues shout blind on the phonograph. The rhythm and the rhythm. And your memory in my head three years after, and read Adonais's last triumphant stanzas aloud, wept, realizing how we suffer. And how death is that remedy all singers dream of, sing, remember, prophesy as in the Hebrew anthem or the Buddhist book of answers. And my own imagine, my own imagination of a withered leaf, a dawn, dreaming back through life, your time and mine, accelerating towards apocalypse, the final moment. The flower burning in the day, and what comes after, looking back on the mind itself that saw an American city a flash away, and the great dream of me or China or you and a phantom Russia, or a crumpled bed that never existed. Like a poem in the dark, escaped back to oblivion. No more to say, and nothing to weep for but the beings in the dream, trapped in its disappearance, sighing, screaming with it, buying and selling pieces of phantom, worshipping each other, worshipping the God included in it all. Longing? or inevitability. While it lasts, a vision. Anything more? It leaps about me as I go out and walk the street looking back over my shoulder. Seventh Avenue, the battlements of window office buildings shouldering each other high under a cloud tall as the sky an instant and the sky above an old blue place. Or down on the avenue to the south to as I walk towards the Lower East Side, where you walked fifty years ago, a little girl from Russia, eating the first poisonous tomatoes of America, frightened on the dock, then struggling in the crowds of Orchard Street, toward what? Toward Newark? Toward candy store, first homemade sodas of the century, hand-churned ice cream in back room on musty brown floor boards, toward education, Marriage, nervous breakdown, operation, teaching school, and learning to be mad in a dream. What is this life?
I first read that um, a number of years ago, maybe f- six or seven years ago, and it's a very poignant uh, piece. Uh, his mother, I think, had uh, schizophrenia or, or um, was manic-depressive, and uh, it's very poignant and moving. Um, him wrestling with his questions and the same questions that uh, we've all touched and lived with all our lives and humanity's been been uh, searching for centuries, millennia that uh, confronted with this great uh, presence in the midst of our life that uh, dissolves into mystery the fact that you know, here we are living, breathing, doing our thing loving each other, hating each other and suddenly poof, somebody's gone where do they go? Where do we come from in the first place? And ever since we started to think, millennia, th- tens of thousands of years ago, we've been asking, I think that was probably the first question we came up with, when they invented the question mark. <laughs> <laughs> this is what it was made for. And uh, it's the quest, one of the questions that all religions, uh, religious teachings um, seek to, to deal with. Where do we come from? Where are we going? It's question one. Question two is, what do I do about it? <laughs> so it's, it's interesting to... Um, to contemplate this and to see how the Buddha treated this um, this uh, this great question that all of us are faced with, because even if no one uh, close to us has died, and probably everyone in this room has had someone uh, close who has uh, who has passed away, but um, even if we haven't, and we've never really had uh, much time or, or much inclination to think about this question every single one of us is going to have to face it one day. Drum roll here. (laughs) Because the fact is that in a hundred years' time, none of us will be here. Maybe one or two of the twenty-somethings. Not many. (laughs) We've got an awful lot of ashes spread over different bits of the planet. Kind of turning into grass and and uh, trees and ocean and such like, but um, but uh, the per- the people that we are at this time will be gone. Fact. So one of these days, we're going to have to face that question. Um, whether we happen to be ready for it or not. The, the, we, it'll, it needs to be faced. And it's interesting how we, we conceive death in, in, this, uh, in our culture. You know, we use this expression, if something should happen to me. <laughs> it's, it's very difficult to say, when I die. It's like, if something should ever happen to me, you know, if. <laughs> or some, something, you know. It's as, as you know, as if it was negotiable, or 
there was some uh, there was some way out of it. The, uh, there's a, a passage in the Mahabharata, the great Indian epic, where um, the uh, the eldest of the um, Pandavas, the the um, the good guys, the five five brothers, um, the one side of the the fight, and the eldest is um, I think called Prince uh, Dhritarashtra. I think that's his name. Anyway, there's this incident where he's um, uh, all of his the rest of his brothers have have mysteriously died, and he's um, being quizzed by this strange voice appearing out of the appearing out of the mist and he knows he has to get all the answers to these questions right otherwise his his uh, his brothers can't be revived and uh, anyway this voice comes out of of nowhere um uh, some some uh, great deity uh quizzing him and one of the questions that this voice asks is what is the most uh, amazing and wonderful thing in the world uh, and then the, the prince thinks for a moment and says, the most amazing and wonderful thing in the world is that despite the fact that every single one of us is going to die one day, all of us think that we can somehow avoid it. <laughs> so something instinctual in us kind of pulls away from the question. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to consider it. And um, so... This is why you know, spiritual teachings you know, are frequently kind of raise this up and, and bring it to our attention because our instinct is to, to draw away and to hide and to, and to try and avoid thinking about it. So the Buddha was the same in this. And it's, it's very interesting that, um, that so strong is that um, the in- instinctual fear of death within us that... Um, of the, uh, the the central teaching on meditation in the Theravada scriptures, the Satipatthana Sutta, the the largest section of that is um, as on mindfulness of the body. It's called this is the four foundations of mindfulness: mindfulness of the body, feelings, um, mindfulness of of um, mental states and mind objects. So the the mindfulness of the body section is is very very large. And the majority of that is taken up on contemplation of death. This is interesting. This is like the chief meditation teaching in the Theravada scriptures. And most of it, uh, this, this large chunk of it, is taken up with the recollection and contemplation of, of our own physical death. Now the... Um, the fear of death is one element of it, but the other side of it, um, which comes up, and which is the question, is what you know. What happens? You know, where do we go? What's going? On? Do we go anywhere? Does it just you know the lights go out and that's it? Act five, scene five, exeunt. <laughs> um, or is there an, you know is there another act, another another play, or what? And uh, I, f- I find it um, very, very interesting how the Buddha handled this question. Um, in the West, and, and just as uh, in the East and the time of the Buddha, just as now, uh, the, the, ver- the opinions uh, on this greatest question vary enormously, and they always did 
and they always will do. And so um, the Buddha respected this, this fact. And there's a, a, a wonderful discourse in the middle-length sayings called the uh, Apanaka Sutta. This means the incontrovertible. And what he says in this, in this discourse is, um, this is paraphrased, um, he says, if you ask me um, about, um, the, na- about uh, the nature of, of um, birth and death, I say categorically, there is this life, there is the next life. And those who say that I do not teach this uh, are misrepresenting the Tathagata. They're mis- people are misrepresenting the Buddha. So oftentimes you hear um, in the West, you know, um, particularly Dharma teachers, are very prone to saying, you know, the Buddha said absolutely nothing about rebirth. Nothing. <laughs> this is rubbish. <laughs> that uh, it was spoken about frequently. And that, uh, and even though many of us feel uncomfortable with that question, or uncomfortable with the idea of, of, um, of previous lives or future lives, uh, the fact of the matter is, whether we like it or not, that it appears over and over and over and over and over and over again in the teachings. And the Buddha was quite explicit, saying, you know, if you ask me, if you want to know how I see things, I say, there is this life, there are previous lives, there are, uh, of, uh, are future lives, there is this world, there is the other world. And there is the fruit, uh, there is the ripening of good and bad action. And uh, this is the case. However, this is where it gets very interesting. He says, however, there are, are noble um, householders and Brahmins and, and wanderers who hold the belief that you know, at, uh, after death there is nothing. And, um, and uh, there are noble householders and Brahmins and, and wanderers who hold that you know, after death there is, uh, there is uh, another life. So he said, so the way to... Um, to, to deal with this question with respect to, to all people is the following saying to uh, if, uh, if you consider that if you live a wholesome life if you are kind, generous, truthful um, if you live in a wholesome way then um, you will be respected by wise people you will attract good friends to you um, you will rest easily at night and when the, when the time of your death comes, you will die peacefully. Now, if there is no other world, then at least during this lifetime, you've had a, a pleasant living situation, you've had a, 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 um, a, a comfortable and pleasant life, and you have um, brought goodness into the world, been praised by the wise. And if there is another, another life after this one, then certainly those actions will take you to a pleasant destination, quote, unquote. <laughs> On the other hand, if you live a, a selfish life, if you're cruel and jealous and, and, um, and unkind, greedy, um, if you're dishonest and uh, uh, malicious and so on, then you will attract um, uh, unwholesome people to you. you will, your heart will be anxious and restless. You will be fearful. Um, you, will, you will not rest easily at night. You will be criticized by the wise. And when, when the time of death comes, then you will die in an agitated and, and painful state. So, um, so if there is 
uh, if there is nothing uh, after the time of death, then even in this life you've made a miserable uh, situation for yourself, and life has been uh, full of fear and and uh, and struggle and difficulty. But um, uh, if there is another life after this one, then certainly those actions will take you to an unpleasant destination. Quote unquote. So. Um, in the first case, one gains in both instances, and in the second case, one loses in both instances. So, let the wise one choose for themselves. <laughs> so, uh, that's, uh, I find, a very, very helpful way, because the Buddha's teaching is based um, on, on, ex- on our own individual experience. And he, um, he sketched the whole thing out, not as a metaphysical system, that, uh, that his teaching and what he put across, even though he says, quite, as I say, quite categorically, there is this realm, there are other realms, there is this life and other lives, and the fruit, the results of good and bad action. That is, if you want a, if you want a statement, that's a statement. However, the, the primary thing is our own experience and, uh, and how, how we work with that and not whether we believe in the words of an authority or a, a kind of impressive uh, logical system or something that's, um, that has been you know, handed on to you as um, a kind of perfect truth. And so that uh, I, I find that this is a, a way that can encompass everybody's different sort of preferential belief systems, whether we like to think of of uh, our lives, I mean, previous lives or lives in the future, or we like to think there's nothing. This came out of nowhere and that's it, finito. Um, then uh, this uh, approach encompasses all. And just as in the um, uh, earlier this morning when the, the weekend retreat people were, were departing, one of the questions somebody asked was, you know, does the Bu- did the Buddha talk about the, about the creation, about the, uh, how everything came into being. And um, the, interestingly enough, this was a point that, that the Buddha absolutely refused to speak on. He said, this is in, the ultimate beginning of things is completely inconceivable. This is totally um, beyond the range of, of human conception, um, what the actuality is. He says, yeah, if you try and figure it out, you'll either go crazy or your head will explode. Actually, break into seven pieces, <laughs> to be technical. <laughs> and uh, so that, um, you know, the, the point being that, uh, that um, of course, you can, create, you can create an image or a story or a creation myth, but the point is that the, the actuality of it contains far more dimensions than our conceptual mind is, is able to arrange. It's like... like um, Drawing a, no matter how beautifully you, you, you draw a, a picture of this glass, no matter how perfect the drawing is, you, you can't pour water into the picture. So it's like the, the, the actuality of, of, um, of how, even if the word how applies, where this has all originated from, the world of mind and body and, and matter and thought and feeling and so on, that um, that is, is not within the realm of conception. And therefore the Buddha said, leave it alone. Don't bother trying. Similarly with, 
the questions of, of, of birth and death and, and lives after this one. He says, these are not important questions. These are not, these are not crucial. Because what makes a difference is what we do here and now. That's what makes a difference. So, just even though uh, most religions concern themselves with you, where did we come from, and uh, and what do we do now? Um, the way the Buddha approached it was was um, to to bring it out of the sort of metaphysical realm and to bring it into a very practical realm. And so, the question he he posed instead was, where where does suffering come from? Where does the experience of disharmony and dissatisfaction. Where does that come from? And what do we do about that? And so bringing those, those, those kind of great uh, religious questions uh, into very, uh, kind of crystallizing them into the essence of, of, of our own immediate life and experience. Because that's the thing that matters. And the rest we can allow to be mysterious. Whether we have a conceptual map for something um, or not doesn't always make a difference. The whole scientific world has been cranking away like crazy for the last hundred years trying to map everything out. And one of the most marvelous and incredible things is that the more facts that we discover, for every fact that we discover, we unearth another dozen mysteries. Anyone who's ever been involved in scientific research you'll know that as you're trying to nail down one, just one, one little fact that you can be sure of, in the process of trying to find it, trying to nail it down, all these other weirdnesses get uncovered. Completely throws out your, you know, your model of, of how it all works, is completely thrown out. I remember uh, reading a, a piece in the newspaper, I think when they sent one of the... the, the um, Voyager satellites out, and I think it went, went past Saturn and um, took some photographs of the different moons of Saturn. And, um, and the, I remember this report from NASA saying, it's amazing, it's wonderful, it's marvelous, it's incredible, you know, that we've never had such a, a, um, a good view of, of, these, uh, of these moons. However, um, the fact of the way they're made and how they move completely destroys all current theories of, <laughs> of planetary motion. So we, um, it's great and it's marvelous, but we're going to have to go back to the drawing board. <laughs> so another, another analogy I like to use, it's like we can play a musical instrument, like a flute or a violin, and we can play in harmony with other instruments. We can make beautiful music without being able to describe, without being able to write mathematical equations for the vibration of air in, in, a, in a metal tube or the, the, the vibrations of a, of a string and all of the kind of biochemical changes in the, in the cat gut that goes on in a violin string. We don't need to be able to describe that in order to, to make music. Similarly, we don't need to figure out all of the whys and wherefores of the universe in order to bring our heart into harmony with the universe. And that's what the Buddha is pointing to. That this is what we're capable of. We can see there's disharmony. And we can see that uh, that can be resolved. That's what we can do. And then when our heart is in harmony with the universe, then 
then uh, whether the the mysteries reveal themselves or they don't, that's extra. That's just uh, you know sauce on the on the ice cream sundae. You know whether there's sauce or not. It's, you know, still you got the ice cream. So then, the 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 way that the Buddha described how this experience of of dissatisfaction or dukkha arises is through a, a process which he described as uh, dependent origination. So, out of the kind of Buddhist version of of Genesis is a dependent origination, and in a way, in a way, it's exactly the same picture. How does out of out of um, nothingness and the presence of uh, of ultimate reality, do you get me being irritated with my next door neighbour, me being fed up with a head cold, me wanting to get something that I can't get my hands on, me wanting to get off my hands something that's stuck there? How does that happen? If, if in the beginning all you had was was God and space. How did we get this? How do we end up with this? And uh, in exactly the same way as you find in the book of Genesis, um, the uh, the problem is desire. Uh, it's exactly what Buddha po- the Buddha pointed to as well. I just see you have uh, Adam and Eve um, falling for the apple, tempted by the serpent. Of course, I mean, there's obviously layers and layers and layers of of meaning and, and symbol there. But what you have in that story is the relationship between ultimate reality, desire, and suffering. And uh, this is what the Buddha pointed to in Dependent Origination. That um, when there is ignorance, when the mind is not clear, when there is lack of, of clear seeing, then there's a, the, the identification process, the attachment to the, to the body, to feelings, perceptions, the, the grasping tendencies of the mind um, take hold of you know, the body, the memories, the feelings, perceptions. And, uh, and there's a, 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 um, a sense of, of identity arises. And then when, um, when we hear something or see something or smell or taste or touch, or think something, because we have eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind, they're sensitive, so the world is always contacting us. So when, when that contact is made, then a feeling arises. We see something, we go, oh, that's interesting. Or um, we hear something, oh, God, that's really ugly. We smell something, go, oh, that's foul. Or, or something touches us. Oh, that's that's nice. That's comfy. Nice warm blanket out in the the cold, snowy day. So then a feeling arises. There's contact, and then feeling, and then feeling conditions craving, tanha, like. First of all, that feeling of, oh, that's beautiful. That just, the, the realm of feeling is innocent and pure. The heart can be quite at peace just when we live in the realm of feeling. 
as I've been saying in the last couple of days, whether it's painful feeling or pleasant feeling, whether it's delightful or, or painful, the heart can be at ease with that. And when the, as the, when the confusion sets in, if there's a, enough ignorance there, then what happens is that that feeling of, of pleasantness or, or unpleasantness then triggers a kind of, we, we lose our center, we lose our mindfulness and we, we go to, uh, to pursue that object. Oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a bit more of this? Or um, that experience of um, when they put out the, uh, um, when they put out the cakes and you're about 34th in the queue and you're trying to count the cakes at the, <laughs> from 25 yards away across the room. Is there going to be enough? There must be at least six diabetics in front of me. <laughs> you know, the mind sees an object and, and, and then craving sets in, feeling conditions craving. Then craving conditions attachment, uh, grasping. So this is like a kind of the growth of a feeling. It's like the, the, the mind reaches out to an object, takes hold of it, and, and grasps it. Then, then grasping there leads to what is called becoming, bhava. And bhava is, um, is an interesting word. It took me years and years to really get a feeling for what it's about. But my interpretation of it, or how I see it, is like bhava is basically what the consumer culture is built around. Bhava is the thrill of getting what you want. It's that moment of, yes, the last cake. <laughs> I got it. And that, that, that moment of complete gratification of, of, I got it, or I got rid of it. You know, I told him, I gave him what for, <laughs> And, um, but even though it's an it's a intensely satisfying state, whether it's getting rid of something painful or getting hold of something del- delightful, the, the, the gratification is real, then what becoming leads to very rapidly is birth. Um, and, and birth is the point of, of no return. Like once, uh, you know, the symbol being once a, a child is born, it can't get back into the mother again. So, um, what this means is that when we've followed something, when we've absorbed ourselves into to chasing after something, we've we've been attracted to it. We've we've followed it. We've grasped it. We've we've um, absorbed. Com- we've invested our heart completely in that. Then it's like suddenly you're you're launched. The umbilical cord is is cut. It's like okay, now I wanted this. Now I've got it. So it's, this is the moment after the big gratification. You know, that kind of shadowy feeling of, right. <laughs> well, I got it, and, um, hmm, I wonder what this is going to lead to. And then following birth in this, this kind of symbolic um, process, the, the, um, the the thing that follows birth in this formula is this wonderful uh, expression soka parideva dukkha dhammanasa upayasa which of course I'll ask you to 
will remember, but so, and Soka Pari Deva Dukkha Domanasa Upayasa means sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Death, in other words. Which means, uh, and this is uh, again an experience that all of us have had. You know, we, I mean, I, I could fill in a few details or give some examples, but I think as I'm speaking, that your mind is running through a few examples. It's all very familiar to us, isn't it? That you know, you you chase after something, you get what you want, you kind of vent your spleen, or you you make the big contact. You you know, you you uh, invest in something, or you. Um, you have great hope, and then the 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 the, the glamour, uh, using the word in its original sense, the the kind of magical aura, the kind of delicious aura of it, starts to pale and wane, and then we find ourselves disappointed. The thing doesn't satisfy, um, or it changes. We lose it. You know, the, our beloved. Uh, just doesn't look quite so cute as he used to. <laughs> Did I really want to live with this guy for the rest of my life? She used to be nice once. <laughs> Strange how I used to like her. And to our amazement, suddenly that it's gone. And for whatever reason, that... Um, then that that becomes more and more kind of disappointing and lost. And this, you know, you have this great slew of different adjectives and, and kind of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. These kind of emotional, kind of dark emotional states, and you know, we all experience these in different ways. But it's that basically that, that inner sense of, of disappointment, desolation, a feeling of lack, of something missing. And then, what this, why, the, and the, 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 this cycle or this process is called the cycle of birth and death, or the bhava chakra, the wheel of becoming. Because what happens is then, <coughs> there we are. We follow that experience. We follow that 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 urge. We we've been gratified. There was a moment of gratification when everything was fine. Life was great, and then it turned into this kind of sour wasteland. And then. Then, if we're ignorant, if we if we stay asleep, then what happens is there's this longing for that for wholeness, for for completion, for for fullness again. So what happens is that the the last time that we can remember that we felt good was the time that we we uh, we got the previous hit. So then, what happens is that we're there. We are in this kind of incomplete and and uh, desolate state, then the eye contacts an object, the ear hears a sound, the body feels something, a thought comes up, and then off it goes. Desire, attached, desire, grasping, uh, becoming, and then as an, another moment of gratification in a different way, maybe a different object, a different field. But, um, and then as another moment of, of completion and wholeness, and then Again, that fades and disappoints us. And then, once again, and again, and again, and again, and again. So this is what the Buddha calls the wheel of birth and death. And whether we think of that as occurring across lifetimes, 
across different bodies or whether we see that just in the process of one Dharma talk. <laughs> one, one cup of tea. One, uh, one fraction of a second. The whole cycle can occur. We can see that very easily. And so that um, becoming aware, first of all, a, the point is to become aware of this process, seeing this is how it works. This is how the heart keeps uh, caught up and how we keep getting reborn. Born into hopes, born into f- to fears, born into to love and hate. And how we keep dying, experiencing this kind of psychological death and then being reborn again. When it was funny, um, one time I was, uh, I was uh, talking about this, a, a couple of, um, of young Thai women came to visit Amravati Monastery in England. This was a couple of years ago when I was, I, I think I was a senior monk there at the time. Anyway, they'd, um, they were asking about, uh, about this kind of question and, and I was talking, trying to explain dependent origination. And so I said, um, well, for example, and uh, they, they'd uh, arrived in this big, red, a very big, very red Mercedes. And just to give a little bit of a background, in Thailand, owning a Mercedes is like is kind of just sort of one notch below arahantship. <laughs> you know, it's the absolute highest goal in life. You know, but one. It's a kind of massively important symbol to own a Mercedes. And so these these young women, obviously. Um, well, this was my guesswork, was that here they are, they've come to England, they've been students, maybe working in London, saved up all their pennies, and they've lashed out, and they've bought this, this wonderful big red car, and now they can take pictures of themselves beside it, and send it back to mum and dad. Say, look, we've, we've come to the new country, we've made it. And, you know, this is all fine and good. And so I would kind of guess this. Uh, um, this is happening. So I said, for, uh, say for example... Here you you know you, you you come to this country and you're you're a student and you're poor and you work really hard and you think well maybe when we when we graduated we'll get a job and we can save up and maybe get a Mercedes won't that be marvelous and so you create this big hope and you work really hard and and finally uh, you know you save up all your money and then you get the car and you take all your snapshots and you send them home and everyone's really kind of excited and pleased and and you feel really happy. Because you've got this wonderful, wonderful car. And then, you know, there you are, you're, you're, you're completely absorbed in, this is my car, isn't it lovely, isn't it beautiful, isn't it wonderful? Then, um, maybe you, you live close by a pub, and you, you happen to park the car in the street one night. And then, as people do, they come out of the pub, they see a nice big red car, expensive car, and they think, well, I'll have a go at that. And then they, they, they take a bottle or some kind of sharp object and they put a big scratch all the way down the side of the car. And this happens often in London. It probably happens here as well. But it's a kind of one of the done things. <laughs> City life. Mess up nice, people's nice cars. So, um, and then, so here's this car which, you know, was, was, you know, made you so happy. And now... Um, you come out, and rather than being able to appreciate the car for what it is, all you can see is this scratch. And you want to murder. 
So who did this? Who ruined my? And as I was talking, as I was saying this, one of the women and Thai, Thai people are usually extremely kind of polite and, and composed in front of monks. And this uh, one woman started giggling, kind of, and kind of snickering. And as I kind of got into my flow and was describing, you know, all these sort of angry feelings that you might be experiencing, she actually kind of started convulsing and fell over. She was laughing so much. She was having hysterics. And I was, this is very strange. Yeah. What's wrong with her? And uh, anyway, um, and the other one was kind of getting redder and redder as I was talking. And I began to, I began to think, oh, maybe I've, uh, maybe I've struck something here. And um, eventually the, the woman who was on the floor composed herself. And, <laughs> and she said, um, well, actually, um, this happened last night. <laughs> and the whole way up the, up the freeway, you know, you should have heard what she was saying, what she was going to do to the guy who scratched the car. Because <laughs> obviously she'd been kind of ranting and raving the, the whole way to Amravati. So the, um, this is like under, beginning to understand this process, we begin to understand you know, birth and death, how we get born, how we die, and um, how that which we love can be the cause of, of, of pain for us. Because you know, we, we put our heart into something and then it changes. Somebody comes along, messes up our car, we, we fall in love with someone and then they, they, they leave us or, or um, they... Uh, they become boring, <laughs> or we become bored with them, whatever it might be, or they die, and people die, and then that that which we were which we loved and which was a source of joy becomes a source of pain, and if we don't understand that, then the only thing we can think to do is to repeat the process and hope for a better break the next time, which is what we do, isn't it? Oh. Bad break. Should have done it on a Tuesday. <laughs> you know, I know, I'm, I know it never works out with, with Tauruses. <laughs> Should have gone for a Leo. Better luck next time. And, and so we, we just, that's what we do the whole life, like waiting for the next break. And it, it's, uh, maybe I should just go back to school and you know, retrain as a go back and become a school teacher. And then you do the whole training, become a school teacher. Yeah, this is it. Uh, maybe I should be an architect. <laughs> go back to school, do a whole architect training. Yeah, this is it. Uh, maybe I should be a lion tamer. <laughs> or whatever, you know. Don't, so the the um, the Buddha's teaching is is first of all te- pointing us to understanding that, seeing that process happening, and then learning how to let go of it. And first of all, you know, for all of us, what happens is we we just see ourselves doing this. We see that we keep creating um, suffering for ourselves. We keep creating difficulty. We get caught up in this, we love this, we hate that, we have opinions about the other. And then, we, first of all, the f- we just see that this is something that we're doing. But the habits are so strong, we can't just decide not to be that way. You know, have you ever decided never to get angry again? You know, I shall never get lustful ever again. 
I should never look lustfully at a stranger. <laughs> Fat chance. I'm going to give up being jealous. <laughs> it doesn't work, does it? No, the intention's there, but the intention is not enough. It's like intending, okay, I think I'll learn French. You know, it's exactly the same. It, it, the intention is one thing, but the actual process of, of learning a language, the actual process of, of letting go of anger, of lustfulness, of jealousy, of selfishness, it's a long, long, involved um, expenditure of energy and uh, takes wisdom, application. So slowly, what what we what we we start to be able to do is we catch the process a little bit further down the line. We see ourselves getting swept along into a situation. We kind of before the the birth moment, we see that we're kind of well into the becoming, and at least we can see. Oh, here we go. At least you knew you were going, <laughs> which is better than just having gone and, and waking up, on, you know, splattered on the rocks. But you, you can see, and then slowly, you know, the more you bring mindfulness to, and awareness to this, you kind of catch it. You see the, uh, the, the whole quality of grasping, that I'm really getting carried away with this. This is really becoming an issue for me. Why is this person in my mind the whole time? I'm so full of annoyance and irritation with this person. I'm carrying them around all day. Mm. We feel that kind of grasping. And again, we begin to, to catch the process earlier and earlier. And so with meditation, we, as we see that happening, slowly we begin to, be, to trace it back to, to the point where, where um, desire arises, where feeling turns into desire. And, and uh, the more that we can bring it back to that point, then the less sort of karmic momentum gets, uh, gets brought into it. I like to, to think of it like a flywheel, like a big flywheel. That, that um, uh, you know, the, as a, when it's just the world of, uh, of feeling, seeing, hearing, thinking, smelling, tasting, touching, experiencing emotion and so on, that it's just like the, you know the, the flywheel just the wheel just turns, and that when when desire comes into the picture, this is like you know the gears engaging, and then the whole vehicle starts to roll. So that when we we can live just with feeling, to notice you know pleasant feeling, painful feeling, neutral feeling. If you want the the, the Pali for these is uh, dukkha vedana is painful feeling. Sukha Vedana is pleasant feeling, and neutral feeling is Adukama Sukha Vedana. <laughs> Adukama Sukha. And, uh, now we might think that painful feeling and pleasant feeling, these are the most important things, and, and neutral feeling is kind of, well, you know, who's got time for that? The other stuff is far more impressive and important, exciting. I once, uh, Ajahn Sumedho gave, I think, probably. Dham, on a winter's retreat, gave uh, gave probably two two weeks worth of Dharma talks just on Adukama Sukha Vedana, on neutral feeling, because we miss it, and or we we don't we we're unclear about just ordinary neutral feeling sensations, and um, but there they are also things that we create preferences around or we have opinions about. So just bringing our attention to the world of feeling and 
and watching it as it tries to turn into to desire like we've been investigating in the last few days like seeing a pain in in your leg feeling a pain in your leg noticing that the the sense of I hate it oh what's going to happen oh my going to need a knee operation like that that's that, that monk in uh, Ajnamro's story last night and yeah, I know it's going to happen in fact yeah there goes the right one <laughs> I can feel it can you get can you get bone cancer from torn ligaments and <laughs> next thing we know there, there we are on a gurney or at least a wheelchair so uh, watching that whole that whole process taking shape. Say, no, 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 it's a feeling. There's a feeling in your knee. Relax. <laughs> oh, now it's gone. <laughs> and, and just getting a sense for, for bringing it back to that point. When we live life at the level of feeling, this is like Adam and Eve in the garden before the, before the serpent shows up. This is the world of innocence and enjoyment, delight. There's painful feeling, pleasant feeling, neutral feeling. Uh, clouds and sky, the ground, the dark of the night, the light of the day. Walking, sitting, standing, lying down, eating, resting, moving around. When when we just live with the the world of of pure feeling, this is like the 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 Eden experience. We're not confused. We're not compulsive. We're completely with the the present moment. There's an easefulness and and, uh, and delight in that. It's when we we uh, we start to to crave and create opinions and believe our thoughts and believe the impulses of love and hate and then buy into them. Then, then that's when uh, you get the uh, banishment and the threat of the old man. Adam, where are you? <laughs> oh God! <laughs> you know that in that world of, of feeling, then there's there's no fear, and there's nothing to fear, because we're not hanging on to anything. We've got nothing to lose. So then, this is the escape from the the cycle of birth and death. This is letting go of the of the wheel, no longer. No longer protracting that, feeding that, no longer engaging with that, so that uh, the uh, when we when you see this in Buddhist texts and, and Buddhist books, you know, it sounds like a kind of very dramatic, grandiloquent statement. You know, enlightenment, escaping from birth and death, it sounds you know like a, a sort of Cecil B. DeMille event, but it's not at all. It's just. Escaping from birth and death is just that gesture of the heart when the grasping stops, when we we no longer feed that uh, momentum. That's all. There's a a very beautiful verse um, that was written by the sixth Zen patriarch, uh, called Hui Neng, which goes something like, In this moment, there is no thing which comes to be. 
In this moment there is no thing which ceases to be. Thus, in this moment, there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. Therefore, in this moment, there is the absolute peace. And even though it is just this moment, there is no limit to this moment. And herein is eternal delight. In this moment, there is nothing which comes to be. Which means everything, what we, we conceive of as things, every person, every cushion, every pain in the knee, every sound, is not a, is not a concrete separate object, but is an event, a pattern of nature, here in the present moment. And there's, it has no continuity through time. But, uh, the universe is really a universe of verbs and adverbs rather than a universe of nouns, of things. And the more we begin to see just that quality of the process of change and the uh, loosening up of the solidity of, of things, of this and that, of me and you, self and other. And we begin to see that life is actually an event that happens now. When that vision is clear, this is what Hui Neng means by, in this moment there is nothing which comes to be. There is no thing traveling from that point of time now to this point of time now. That in this moment each quality of nature is completely unique. And in the heart that recognizes that, that timeless quality of the present, we see that birth and death, that, that which is passing through time, we see that whole, that whole uh, process of, of, um, of self and time, is a fabrication. It's something that we put together. We create that. And then when we, we stop creating it, then we realize that that sense of me being stuck on the wheel, and me wanting to get off the wheel, that all along there never really had been anybody on the wheel. It had just really, really looked that way. It really seems as though we're here, doesn't it? <laughs> I seem to be the most real thing in the universe to me. And I'm sure you are the most real thing in the universe to you. But as we, as we look very, very closely at the realm of experience, we begin to see that the person is constructed. We keep putting, that, putting the person together. And that when, when we stop creating that separateness, that individuality, me passing through time. And instead we open the heart to the, the present moment. We realize that 
that sense of I, that sense of me having this and me wanting that and me liking this and disliking that, that was all added on to the fundamental nature of experience because all there has ever been is the quality of awareness, knowing the changes of nature, knowing the the images of, of sight and sound, smell and taste and touch, thought, emotion, appearing, disappearing. So even though this moment just seems like a, a finger snap, a fraction, and when the past and the future seem like these great oceans of time, the more we look we realize it's actually the present which is oceanic. And the past and the future are images, perceptions that, that come into being momentarily. The past is a memory that's experienced now. The future is an idea which is experienced now. That's why you have this the amazing line. It really always, every time I think of it or, or say it, it always brings me brings me to a standstill. <laughs> Thus, there is no birth and death to be brought to an end. One time, uh, a number of years ago, there was a, a woman who had um, terminal cancer who was living in our monastery. And she um, she actually came from a Muslim family, but they allowed her, gave her permission to be ordained as a nun because she was dying. And um, so she, she took the precepts as a, as a nun. And uh, we used to, in the last week of her life in particular, we were sitting with her as a 24-hour vigil, all the different monks and nuns of the community. And uh, she was so um, she was so peaceful and and had such a, a serene presence. Her room became the most popular place in the monastery. It was a kind of rota. You had to queue up to get on the rota with Dasanir. And um, I remember very clearly uh, the night she died. I happened to to be there. It was about half past one in the morning. There was about four of us in the room with her. And uh, we got so used to, to being around and there was such a, a kind of atmosphere of stillness and, and peace in the room. And I'd always got this feeling, I'd, I'd, I'd seen quite a number of dead people, but I'd never actually been with someone at the moment of death. And I'd always got this idea that when somebody dies, there's this sort of, uh, there'll be this, at least a tingle or the, the wind of death will, will swish through the room and the curtains will ruffle or... At least something a little dramatic you know, would happen. And, uh, and I remember um, one, of the, one of the nuns was, was holding her. And uh, there was myself and another monk and another nun in the, in the room at the time. And, and uh, her breathing had become a little bit difficult. And, and then uh, she'd become, she took a few drops of medicine and then, and then lay still. I remember closing my eyes, sitting there for a few minutes, and suddenly the nun who was holding her said, she's gone. I remember thinking, but nothing happened. (laughs) She can't have gone. 
what happened to my my uh, my experience of the death moment? And then it was it was very interesting because immediately following on that way on, on the in the wake of that thought was, of course nothing happened. <laughs> you know that uh, that one moment there's the perception of a body alive, the next moment there's a, there's the perception of a body dead. A leaf fell off a tree. A breath moved. Nothing happened. Just one moment, then another moment. And it was uh, the most kind of profound and, and uh, moving experience because it was uh, uh, the, the first insight that I ever really had into what the, the Buddha was talking about. That if we really rest in that quality of, of awareness, that timeless quality, then all the comings and goings of thoughts, of breaths, and of bodies can be experienced with the same serenity. Bodies come, bodies go. That's life. <laughs> and that, that, that if there's that ease and serenity, the heart is open and at ease with them. That's what the um, the verse in the Dhammapada means. Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. It's like Ajahn Sumedho's kind of, sort of national anthem for Amaravati. <laughs> Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. Heedlessness is the path to death. The mindful never die. The heedless are as if dead already. Which doesn't mean to say if you're mindful, your body's not going to die. You know, you could market this seriously in Los Angeles if it was. But, but hey, look, you know, this big religious authority says, you know, if you're mindful, you won't die. You know. Your body will die, but you won't. <laughs> bodies, bodies come and go, but that which is real was never born and never dies. This is all kind of getting a bit esoteric, I, I realize. But um, I thought it's important to, to bring these themes up and for people to reflect upon. Because these are big issues in our world. And hopefully during this time, this time together, we can get more and more of a sense for that. And to realize these are not weird esoteric abstractions. This is our life. You know, this, is, this is about number one and how it, how it is. So these are kind of useful things to, to work on. And when the Buddha said, you know, this is, this is the way out of, of birth and death. This is, this is the path. This is the way we can experience reality and and happiness this is the path so it's uh, it's amazing a miracle that uh, it's here for us
So, to close, I'll read another of these. This is called Mind Breaths. Thus, cross-legged on round pillow, sat in Teton space. I breathed upon the aluminium microphone stand a body's length away. I breathed upon the teacher's throne, the wooden chair with yellow pillow. I breathed further, past the sake cup, half emptied by the breathing guru. This is Trumper. <laughs> breathed upon the green sprigged thick leafed plant in a flower pot, breathed upon the vast plate glass shining back the assembled sitting sangha in the meditation cafeteria. My breath through nostril floated out to the moth of evening beating into the windowed illumination, breathed outward over aspen twigs trembling September's top yellow leaves twilight at mountain foot, breathed over the mountain over snow-powdered crags ringed under slow-breathed cloud mass white spumes, windy across Tetons to Idaho, grey ranges under blue space swept with delicate snow flurries, breaths westward, Mountain grass trembling in tiny winds towards Wasatch. Breezes south, late autumn in Salt Lake's wooded, wooden temple streets. White salt dust lifted, swirling by the thick leaden lake, dust carried up over Kennecott's pit onto the massive unit rig. Out towards Reno's neon dollar bills skittering down street along the curb up into Sierra's oak leaves, blown down by fall cold chills. Over peak tops, Snowy gales beginning, a breath of prayer down onto Kitkit Dizzy's horn green leaves, close to ground, over Gary's tile roof, over Temple Pillar, tents and manzanita arbors in Sierra Pine foothills. A breath falls over Sacramento Valley, roar of wind down the six lane freeway across Bay Bridge, uproar of papers floating over Montgomery Street. Pigeons flutter down before sunset from Washington Park's white church steeple. Golden Gate waters white-capped scudding out to Pacific spreads. Over Hawaii, a balmy wind through hotel palm trees. A moist warmth swept over the airbase, a dank breeze in Guam's rotten customs shed. Clear winds breathe on Fiji's palm and coral shores. By wooden hotels in Suva, town flags flutter, taxis whoosh by. Friday night's black promenaders under the rock and roll discotheque window, upstairs beating with e English neon. On a breeze into Sydney and across hillside grass where mushrooms lie low in cow flops in Queensland, down Adelaide's alleys a flutter of music from Brian Moore's Dobro carried in the wind. Up through Darwin land, outgrove peninsula, green ocean breeze, clack of Yakala, village song sticks by the trembling wave. Yea, in a wind over mercurial waters of Japan northeast, a hollow wooden gong echoes in Kyoto's temple hall below the graveyard's wavy grass. A foghorn, blowing in the China Sea, torrential rains over Saigon, bombers float over Cambodia, visioned tiny from stone Avalokiteshvara's many-faced towers of Angkor Wat in a windy night. A puff of opium out of a mouth yellowed in Bangkok, a puff of hashish flowing thick out of a bearded sadhu's nostrils and eyes in Nimtala Burningat. 
Wood smoke flowing in wind across Hooghly Bridge, incense wafted under the bow tree in Bodhgaya. In Benares, wood piles burn at Manikarnika, returning incensed souls to Shiva. Wind dallies in the amorous leaves of Brindaban, still air on the vast mosque floor above Old Delhi's alleyways. Wind blowing over Kausani town's stone wall, Himalayan peak tops ranged hundreds of miles along snowy horizon, prayer flags flutter over Almora's wood-brown housetops. Trade winds carry dows through Indian Ocean to Mombasa or down to Dar es Salaam, riverside sailport, palms sway and sailors, wrapped in cotton, sleep on log decks, soft breezes. Up through the Red Sea to Eilat's dry hotels, paper leaflets scatter by the wailing wall, drifting into the sepulchre. Mediterranean zephyrs leaving Tel Aviv over Crete, Lassithi Plains, windmills, still turn the centuries near Zeus's birth cave. Piraeus, wave-lashed, Venice Lagoon's waters blown up over the floor of San Marco, piazza flooded and mud on the marble porch. Gondolas bobbing up and down, choppy waters at the Zateri. Chill September fluttering through Milan's arcade, cold bones and overcoats flapping in St. Peter's Square. Down Appian Way, silenced by grave sites. Stelae, solid on a lonely grass path, the breath of an old man, laboring up road. Across Scylla and Charybdis, Sicilian tobacco smoke wafted across the boat deck. Into Marseille, coal stacks, black fumes float into clouds, steamers, white drift spume downwind all the way to Tangier. A breath of red-tinged autumn in Provence, boats slow on the Seine, the lady wraps her cloak tight around her bodice on top of Eiffel Tower's iron head. Across the channel, rough black-green waves in London's Piccadilly, beer cans roll on concrete neath Eros's silver breast. The Sunday Times lifts and settles on wet fountain steps. Over Iona Isle, blue day and balmy in a Hebrides breeze, fog drifts across Atlantic. Labrador, white frozen, blowing cold, down New York's canyons, manila paper bags scurry towards wall from Lower East Side. A breath over my father's head in his apartment on Park Avenue, Patterson. A cold September breeze, down from East Hill, Cherry Valley's maples tremble red. Out through Chicago, Windy City, the vast breath of consciousness dissolves. Smokestacks and auto-drift, expensive fumes ribboned across railroad tracks westward. A single breath blows across the plains. Nebraska's fields, harvested and stubble, bending, delicate in evening airs. Up Rockies from Denver's Cherry Creek bed, another zephyr risen. Across Pikes Peak, an icy blast at sunset. Wind River peak tops flowing towards the Tetons. A breath returns. Vast, gliding, grass flats, cow dotted into Jackson Hole, into a corner of the plains, up the asphalt road and the mud parking lot. A breeze of restless September, Upward stairways in the wind, into the cafeteria at Teton Village. Under the red tram lift, a calm breath, a silent breath, a slow breath breathes outward from the nostrils. A1.
अखंड मायांगो वर धमकताया आप सभी करं तदामा से We can finish with the um, the uh, let's see reflections on universal well-being, which is page uh, forty-one. companion to such action and its results will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the end.